0: Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio.
1: This is the most awesome podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hedrick. This podcast is brought to
2: you by Proverbs sixteen eighteen: 18. Pride going before destruction.
0: Hello Truth Transistors. Welcome to episode 17 of my podcast called Apostasy Part 5, I believe. Yes, and we're going to talk about Islam today. And like any like I said about the Roman Catholic Church, I'm not bagging or trashing all, you know, the people of Islam, but just The teachings of it, the the theology of it, and some of the corruption at the top. And so I believe most people in Islam are probably good, well-meaning people, and they're they're kind uh, people. I've met some. I've met some Muslims here in the United States that are very nice. So I'm not attacking you, okay? It's just uh, a theological... uh, discussion and also the foundings of it and hopefully you all will take that to heart and at least look into it. Um, So, in this last uh, just a couple days ago we had another some more violent protests and if you go back to episode 14 this was right after the election uh, or at least right after November 2nd Uh, Go eight minutes into my podcast and you will hear me uh, give two predictions, not prophecies because I'm not a prophet, but I was just suggesting that I because I know how the enemy works and I know how, uh, you know, the strategy of the secret societies is to divide and conquer and order out of chaos and so back then, I was suggesting that there was two there was two things that I could consider that I could see happen. First was that Trump would overturn the election, and at the same time, and that was kind of overkill. That there would be another uh, black person shot by a cop in the back. Which, um, regardless, I think even if the election was just overturned by itself. It would cause an uproar, just you know, like you could see the Antifa people striking again. But I also said that if if Biden continued to win despite all the evidence of fraud, that the rights equivalent to Antifa, uh, which I said from the beginning that Antifa was probably a a opposed opposition to destroy a an otherwise grassroots protest, peaceful protests, and they were there to just cause chaos so that the uh, the media, the Republican media would have something to, to trash about uh, and it would cause more division. And of course, the Republican media all would say things like, the conservatives would never do that. But anyway, I remember saying back in November 4th that if Biden continued, and stayed in in off or the election didn't get overturned and the despite all the evidence of fraud that the rights equivalent to antifa would come out of the woodwork and build down buildings or burn down buildings and as 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 angry as people are about this i'm not surprised (laughs) i could see it coming um and it doesn't mean it's good uh, obviously, I, I opposed the violence from the beginning, but I can see the hypocrisy of the left-right paradigm so obvious. How six or you know six months ago, people on the left—I I had friends on the left that are that would never burn down a building, but they were defending it. They were saying, "Well, uh, that's because you know, you know," and then they would defend it by saying that. How else are we going to get people's attention? Blah blah blah. Um, and but I suggested even back then that that was opposed to opposition. So fast forward to today, and then oh yeah, and like I said, the the conservative media just lumped everybody all in and said all everybody in Black Lives Matter is violent and they're thugs and they're burning down buildings, which is ridiculous. So fast forward to January sixth. Uh, you know, you had these, um, violent protesters and if you paid attention to what was actually happening and not what the media is telling you, um, Trump and his, you know, Trump was having his rally a a bit away from the Capitol and they were going to peacefully march to the white house. And And while Trump was talking, there was already people at the Capitol, uh, doing violent things. Separate from Trump and the people watching him. And yet the media suggests that Trump was the one that led this violent protest, which uh, is false. I'm not a Trump supporter, but I do support the truth. And then, um, like I predicted, no surprise, I'm not a prophet, but there there you have these people claiming to be Trump supporters uh, that were just like Antifa except instead of burning down random buildings, they were uh, raiding the Capitol building. And it was just very chaotic. And now, all of a sudden, the same people that were justifying the violence six months ago, if they were, and they or they were upset that, you know, the media was associating the violence with the peaceful protesters, um... And also that we're claiming, uh, we're saying that we need to defund the police. We're suddenly saying, where were all the police? Why didn't they do their job? And I agree with them on that. But I think we all need to be consistent. And then people on the right were suddenly saying, why you can't lump in Trump supporters with the, the violent people. Those were infiltrators. But none of them said that six months ago. So what goes around comes around. I mean, the left and right media are so inconsistent and so hypocritical. It's not even funny. But this is all part of the strategy. Uh, The division is so strong right now, even within churches. Um, In my own church, there's people divided on masks. There's people that are divided on Black Lives Matter. You know, and... It's it's one thing to have a disagreement. It's another thing to leave the church because you disagree with something, you know, it's it's just that's the kind of thing where that's happening in the world right now. And I believe that uh, or at least in the United States. And I believe that the hand of protection over this country is by God is is beginning to depart um you know one of the signs of punishment on a nation or judgment on a nation is when they are given over to homosexuality and of course more and more that's been not only just accepted but it's been pushed to where if you don't support it you're now a homophobe (laughs) you know it's it's uh it's gotten to that point and now transgender has become in recent years uh, embraced and accepted, and there's, what, 72 genders now. And I think we get what we deserve, you know. Um, with Trump, I know that the media has lied and exaggerated a lot of what he said and done, and they make it sound a lot worse than he actually is or make him sound like a, se- a racist and sexist and, and a hate- hateful person. Um, on the one hand, I, I agree that the media has exaggerated and lied a lot about him. But on the other hand, I think that Trump, the way he talks, is triggering people. And whether or not, you know, I personally believe that that's all part of the strategy. And Trump knows exactly what he's doing. But on the, on the other hand, he may not know what he's doing. And it may be Satan kind of manipulating everything, um, you know. So there is a way to be truthful and not political while still being peaceful. And I think Ron Paul was able to do that. He was able to to speak the truth, proclaim the truth, not take one side or the other, and yet do it in a way that that didn't divide people so much, you know. So that's what I think is happening and I think there's blatant misinformation um, on both sides, even worse on the left. I, I wouldn't have said that if you know six months ago um, I was I didn't like taking sides and I still I'm not taking sides, but it seems like the misinformation is worse on the left. And now I have a hunch and I may have considered this, Four years ago, too, that Donald Trump—the purpose for Donald Trump—is to demonize Christianity and the and conservative politics, or conservatism, uh, conservatism. Um, perhaps um, that was the whole point of Donald Trump: is to present Christianity in a way that uh, is. That comes across as hateful. Um, They already do that with a lot of, I think a lot of uh, apostate pastors are that way. Where they, like Steve, well, Steven Anderson, I think, will get up and say very hateful things that isn't biblical, even though he uses verses out of context. Um, And that's a whole different topic that I don't want to get into here now. But anyway, I know that's a long introduction. So, I will do a quick bit here, and then we'll move on to Islam.
2: What are we having for dinner, Mom? Just a minute. I'm lifting my weights. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, what do I... Uh, just, to make, just to make dinner? Just a minute, son. I hope we don't have cockroach legs again. No, no, we're having tarantula legs. Oh, that's better. But, but do we have to eat it? You better. I'll be right back. Let me go turn on the can and make food. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, um, I'm gonna go play with Goofy. What time do I have to be back? And, um, in two seconds. Okay, back. Okay. i Dinner is almost ready. All I need to do is chop the trash can I call my friend Joe? No. Can I watch TV? No. Can I play Nintendo? No. Can I play Genesis? No. Can I play Atari? No. You know I... what you can play? What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse me. So i got to call. <laughs> you can play. Take your nose. Know. <laughs> okay. That's all my fun. Yep. One, here's one! Thanks, I can put him in my suit. Oh no! Oh no, I broke the record. I see, nobody had ever played it before. Well, you, were. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you just told me to play. Okay, else. Like oh. And I broke a record with one. Cool, dude. I break your own record and oh. pick two more for me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have the slide boogies Bye, everybody me go. I'm going yeah. to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, uh, to go lift buses again
0: Bye, mom So that was my cousin and I Back in 1990-ish 91 uh, Recording on a cassette tape Which is why the audio is kind of bad but I just want to say that my cousin was able to do that low voice. <laughs> I played the, the kid with the high voice and he played the, uh, the that whatever that was. And it was, it was just crazy. I tried it and I think I was able to do it, but it really hurt. <laughs> so anyway, that was, that was a fun bit. So what we're going to do now is talk about uh, Islam. And I would like to start by reading a section from a book by Walter Martin called "The Kingdom of the Colts." And Walter Martin is another guy I want to plug here uh, in this podcast. And think of me as sort of a sort of an encyclopedia to reference you to those that are the experts and because I don't consider myself an expert. I'm, I'm just trying to put things all in one place for you to, to get started and then hopefully find those, those things. So, this is uh, from the Kingdom of the Cults handbook by Walter Martin, chapter 16, called Islam, the Message of Muhammad. Islam is the second largest religion in the world next to Christianity. Although Islam is a world religion and not technically a cult as defined in this book, it is a religion that originated approximately 500 years after the birth of Christ and directly contradicts his teachings. Now, let me quickly say, this is me now, Rob Hendrick, not in the book. Um, Let me quickly say that I slightly disagree. I think there's some truth to his definition of cult. Um as he 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 talks a lot about it being uh, against the culture of the norm the culture norms and and things and obviously also unbiblical teachings but i would also suggest that a cult is where you have some leader that is controlling of the people within it um and so you're not allowed to ask questions um And they guilt trip you if you leave, you know, think, well, of course, I I guess some people would suggest that Christians can guilt people too. Um, But I guess what I'm saying is that it's controlling to the point where um, your family will disown you, uh, things like that. I mean, just, um, you know, even, you know, I'll even suggest that there are Christian cults, you know, Christian that call themselves Christian, but they're very controlling. So you know it, it can exist within within Christianity um, as well. But anyway, I digress. Uh, its place in the religious historical record relative to Christianity, its growing presence in the United States and its anti-biblical theology requires a response. According to scripture, the ancestors of modern Arabs can be traced back to Shem and are proper, properly known as Semites. Shem's descendant Eber gave rise to two lines, Peleg's line, from which Abraham is descended, and Joktan's line, which contains the names of many Arab groups. However, many Arab tribes trace their ancestry to Ishmael, the firstborn son of of Abraham the word Arab refers to nomads or Bedouins I don't know if I said that right and may be connected with the word for desert or wilderness the original meaning explained to refer to Arabic speakers and those living in Arabia Arabness seems to be inherited through the male since intermarriage with non-Arab women was common and is still permitted by the Quran. The Spanish Umayyad Caliph Abd-er-Rahman III, he ruled from 929 to 961, who was proud of his ancestry from the former ruling clan of Mecca before Muhammad was actually only 0.93% Arab. The Quran mentions these pagan deities in Surah 53, 19 through 20. Um, I haven't read the Quran. I guess that's a book of the Quran. It says, Have you seen Lat and Uzza and another, the third goddess, Manat? This is followed by an assertion, verses 21 through 23, that these goddesses, the daughters of Allah, the moon god, according to pre-Islamic Arab theology, are mere human creations that divide God into parts. These deities were popular at Mecca at the time of Muhammad's birth. Lot, or Alat, the goddess, was the sun god. Uzzah, or Al-Uzzah, the mighty one, the planet Venus, and Manamat, the god of good fortune. Other gods mentioned in the quran include wad another moon god mentioned above sawa yagud and nazir in surah 71 verse 23 of these gods all azu Al sorry appears to be the supreme deity in mecca it is believed by some scholars that allah or allah the god can be traced to to Yah or L-L-A-H the the, the South Arabian Moon God. Henotheism or the worship of only one God while not denying the existence of other gods may have existed in pre-Islamic society. The Quran speaks of Hanifs pre-Islamic Arab monotheists who were neither Christian nor Jewish. Extant evidence shows that Allah meant the one God for the many Christians, Jews, Monophysites, and Nestorians who lived throughout the Arabian Peninsula. Muhammad was born in Mecca near the Middle East or Middle Western uh, coastal region of Arabia about 570 AD to Abdullah or Abd Allah, who died uh, two months after he was born, and Aminah, his mother, who died when he was six. Mecca was a large commercial city known for the Kaaba cube, a building famous for its 360 idols containing images of the moon god uh, Hubal, Alat, Al Uzza, and Manat, and the Black Stone. Muhammad's family was of the relatively poor Hashemite clan of the Qurishite tribe. Qurish, Kurar, I can't pronounce it. And it is the patriarch of that tribe. Fir, known as Kirsh or Shark, of the Kana tribe, who Muslims claim to be a descendant of Ishmael and an, an her- heritor of god's promise to hagar in genesis 21:18 after the death of his mother he was sent to live with his grandfather abd al matulib who provided a bedouin foster mother for him halima and was raised in the desert and the death of the grandfather was muhammad when muhammad was 8 He returned to Mecca to live with his uncle, Abdu Talib. At 25, uh, Muhammad married a wealthy 40-year-old widow, Khadijah, after she proposed to him. Uh, Muhammad remained with Khadijah for 25 years and had two sons, who died in infancy and four daughters. After Khadijah died in uh, 619 or 620, Mohammed married a widow of a disciple and a six-year-old who moved in with him when she was nine. Aisha, his seventh wife, was his ex-daughter-in-law. By the time of his death, he had 12 wives and two concubines, including Mariam, or an Egyptian Coptic, Coptic slave. Interestingly, Surah 4.3 limits the number of wives to four and in Surah 4.31 marriage to one's daughter-in-law was prohibited but in Surah 33 36 through 40 Muhammad was conveniently given a new revelation from God that ordered Zaid Muhammad's adopted son to divorce his wife so Muhammad could marry her by God's command this is called abrogation and Rob Hendrick speaking again. That sounds exactly like a, what a cult leader would do, when they uh, somehow live under different set of rules than the rest of the people, and they control people. So, I just wanted to point that out. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip ahead to get to some of the um, theological stuff. Um, there's a lot more here on the historical end. But um, I'll just refer you to the book, once again, called The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. Uh, Theological Evaluation At first glance, Islamic belief appears to be almost compatible with Christianity or Judaism. Often, people claim that the Muslims believe in the same God as Christians. They just don't accept Jesus Christ. However, As we shall see, the Muslim God is not like the Christian God. Islam rejects the biblical doctrines of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, so much so that written within and all over the inner walls of the dome of the rock mosque in Jerusalem, uh, built in A.D. 692, are specific theological arguments and warnings to all Muslims that Allah has no son and is one in nature, not three. Uh, for the Muslim, Allah is the only true God. There is no such blasphemous thing as the Trinity. The Muslim is an, unapproachably uh, unapproachable by sinful man, and the Muslim's desire to be to submit to the point where he can hold back the judging arm of Allah and inherit a, eternal life in a heavenly paradise, often pictured in terms of food, wine. And sexual pleasure but Allah is not only a harsh wrathful God although the overwhelming teaching in the Quran is that he is sovereign distant and angry Muslims also believe he is loving and forgiving as surah 1190 says ask forgiveness of your Lord then repent to him surely my Lord is all compassionate all loving and eighty five fourteen says, He is the all forgiving and all loving. The Quran is clear that Allah is merciful, but unlike Christians, Muslims do not emphasize a personal relationship with God. Scripture tells us that that those who trust in Christ do the Father's will, and have been redeemed and adopted as sons. Romans eight fourteen through fifteen and Galatians three twenty six. We are heirs of God. Galatians four seven and the Father loves and treats us as his children in Matthew twelve forty seven, Mark three thirty five, and Hebrews twelve five and seven. We can even be called his friends. I'm not going to keep giving all the verses, but on the other hand, those who deny the Son have the devil for their father. That's John eight forty four. To Muslims God has no likeness. It is transcendent, is unknowable, apart from revelation, and is wholly other, uh, wholly other, and totally different. He is neither a physic. He's neither physical nor spirit. The Bible, contradicting the Quran, tells us that we have been created in God's image and likeness, and that we have knowledge of God in our hearts. Moreover, Scripture tells us that God is spirit. Currently, there are two schools of thought in Islam that are that offer varying interpretations of who God is. According to the orthodox school, God is said to have a face, hand, and soul, but it is not legitimate to inquire how, for these, belonging, uh, to His qualities, God has no body. Gilham adds that. Uh, that in the fiqh akbar a creed compiled around the year 1000 and representative of orthodoxy says Allah is absolute in his decrees of good and evil. He does not resemble his creatures in any respect. He has existed from eternity with his qualities. Those belonging to his essence and those pertaining to his his activity, the Quran, is the eternal speech of God, the angel Gabriel to Muhammad. The Quran contains terms that attribute qualities to God, and the Orthodox Muslim believes that God has attributes but is not sure what they mean. Nevertheless, many Muslims believe that God is neither physical nor spirit. God is a total, totally unique being that has no similar in any sense to any other being. This view is based on the assumption that to believe otherwise would mean that God somehow shares his attributes by implication, leads to grave sin or assigning partners to God called shirk jesus christ to the muslims jesus christ is merely one of the many prophets of allah according to islam the prophet muhammad supersedes jesus christ jesus christ is not the son of god or part of any trinity we are told that he um, was nothing but a slave on whom god showed favor yet elsewhere we are told the messiah is not a slave Jesus Christ did not atone for anyone's sin, according to them, although he was himself sinless and is one of those who are near to God. Positively, the Quran says that Jesus Christ performed miracles and was the Messiah, but Jesus Christ did not die on the cross. Various Muslim traditions say that he either miraculously substituted Judas Iscariot for himself on the cross, crazy they would pick him, or that God miraculously delivered him from the hands of the Romans and Jews before he could be crucified. Most Muslims believe that Jesus Christ was taken bodily into heaven without having died. However, Surah 199.33 says he died and would be resurrected. It is interesting to compare Jesus and Muhammad according to the Quran. Jesus did miracles, but Muhammad did not. Thou art a warner of coming divine judgment only. Jesus was sinless, but Muhammad sinned and needed forgiveness. Ask forgiveness of thy sin. Ask forgiveness for those on earth. Uh, Surah forty-seven, nineteen. Ask forgiveness for thy sin, that Allah may forgive thee of thy sin. Jesus was called the Messiah and was even born of a virgin. Yet Muhammad is supposed to be the greatest of the prophets. The Quran teaches that all have sinned. If God were to take mankind to task for their wrongdoing, he would not leave here one living creature and were created weak. We are even told that Muhammad sinned uh, every Muslim who hopes to escape the judgment of Allah must fulfill the works of the five pillars of the faith. One, recitation of the Shahada, that is, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the Prophet of Allah. Two, five daily prescribed prayers, Salat or Namaz in Arabic. These prayers include gen- genuflection and pros- prostration in the direction of the holy city Mecca. 3. Alms-giving, zakat, which involves the duty to give a certain percentage of one's total income to help others. This is not considered charity but an obligation arising out of the realities of a world where there is poverty inequality, injustice, and suffering. Generally, performing zakat is to be done privately unless there is a pressing reason for the giving to be made known publicly. Four, fasting. Psalm or ruze. During the entire month of Ramadan, when Muslims are supposed to fast from all food and drink from sunrise to sunset, atonement for their own sins over the previous year Muslims are allowed to eat and drink after sunset and some get up before sunrise to eat before the fast begins again five a pilgrimage Hajj to Mecca A, a pilgrimage to Mecca the holy city at least once in a Muslim's lifetime the Hajj takes place after Ramadan the Muslim pilgrims engage in elaborate rituals, both at the famous mosque in Mecca that holds the Kaaba and in areas surrounding the most sacred city. Jihad is sometimes referred to as a sixth pillar of Islam. Since 9-11, there has been constant debate about the meaning of the term. Many Muslims and some secular experts on Islam have tried to say that jihad only refers to personal spiritual struggle. Jihad can and often does mean one's individual efforts to be righteous, but it is often used by Muslims both past and present to refer to actual military struggle or holy war saying that jihad is simply spiritual struggle, ignores Islamic history and the actions of contemporary Muslims, including militants like Osama bin Laden, who used to refer to acts of killing in the name of Allah. There's a lot more in here, but for the sake of time, I'll just refer you to this book. I think uh, Walter Martin has a lot of, you can find videos of Walter Martin on YouTube as well, and more resources by him um, but uh, anyway that's kind of a, a summary of Or I'm sure there's a lot more to it than what I just said that was real quick but um, it's not one of those religions that is that most Christians are deceived by in that sense so it's, it's kind of a little more obvious than maybe some other uh, Christian apostasies Um, but I just wanted to point that out. And after this song, I'm going to play a quick song here. Um, I'm going to play some uh, William Cooper talking about um, the Mystery School's connection to Islam. And this is a song uh, by a band called Dominica that was around back in the mid-90s. My brother was in it. Now, I have three different brothers, and I've played in the past songs from two other ones two other brothers and this is a third brother I'm the only um, of the brothers that was never in a band Uh, I was more into musical theater uh, although I wish I was in a band it seems much cooler but anyway so here's a song by Dominica called reach out and I don't think you can find this anywhere
2: Like a narrow shot into your sanity, there is clearly it's more. Things into a cruel kind Wind blows hard, the hollow sound of dreams giving way Night grows fierce and topples over the weaker light of day Pouring fire in the fireplace, sparks dance to and fro The flame enchants your mind asleep, your senses done not Be wished by the power of forever night to the heart of brought Your painting on the wall burns fast, this you never thought Cowardly man, show me excuses to a war you can't lose, and I'll show you the devil.
0: So once again, that was Dominica. Uh, The song's called Reach Out. You can't find it anywhere, so I don't know why I'm telling you, but I hope you enjoyed it. So moving along, I'm going to play a little bit of William Cooper. This is from the Mystery Babylon series, hour number 11, called The Assassins. And I'll leave a link for the entire episode. But I just wanted to give you a little idea of the connections between the mystery, religion, and... Islam. Two
1: men in the year 1092 stood on the ramparts of a medieval castle. The eagle's nest perched high upon the crags of the Persian mountains. The personal representative of the emperor and the veiled figure who claimed to be the incarnation of God on earth, Hassan, son of Sabah, sheikh of the mountains and leader of the assassins, spoke, quote, You see that devotee standing guard on younger turrent top? watch unquote. He made a signal instantly the white-robed figure threw up his hands in salutation and cast himself 2000 feet into the foaming torrent which surrounded the fortress I have 70,000 men and women throughout Asia and each of them ready to do my bidding can your master malik shah say the same and he asked me to surrender to his sovereignty this is your answer. Go! Now such a scene may be worthy of the most exaggerated of horror films, and yet it took place in historical fact. The only quibble made by the chronicler of the time was that Hassan's devotees numbered only about 40,000. How this man, Sabah, came by his uncanny power, and how his devotees struck terror into the hearts of men from the Caspian to Egypt, is one of the most extraordinary of all tales of the secret societies, the mysteries. Today the sect of the Hashishin our druggers still exists in the form of the Ishmaelis our Ishmaelites whose undisputed chief endowed by them with divine attributes is the Aga Khan. Like many another secret cult, the assassin organization was based upon an earlier association. And in order to understand how they worked and what their objectives were, we must begin with these roots. It must be remembered, dear listeners, that the followers of Islam in the seventh century AD split into two divisions, the Orthodox, who regard Muhammad as the bringer of divine inspiration, and the Shias, who consider that Ali, his successor, the fourth Imam or leader, was more important. It is with the Shias, that we are concerned here. From the beginning of the split in the early days of Islam, the Shias relied for survival upon secrecy, organization, and initiation. Although the minority party in Islam, they believed that they could overcome the majority and eventually the whole world by superior organization and power. To this end, they started a number of societies which practiced secret rites in which the personality of Ali was worshipped and whose rank and file were trained to struggle above all for the accomplishment of world dominion. One of the most successful secret societies which the Shias founded was centered around the Abode of Learning in Cairo, which was the training ground for fanatics who were conditioned by the most cunning methods to believe in a special divine mission. In order to do this, the original democratic Islamic ideas had to be overcome by skilled teachers acting under the orders of the caliph of the Fatimites who ruled Egypt at that time. Members were enrolled on the understanding that they were to receive hidden power and timeless wisdom which would enable them to become as important in life as some of the teachers. And you find these same precepts in every branch, in every nationality, on every continent where the mysteries prevail. The caliph saw to it that the instructors were no ordinary men. The supreme judge was one of them. Another was the commander-in-chief of the army. A third the minister of the court. There was no lack of applicants. In any country where the highest officials of the realm formed a body of teachers, one would find the same thing. Classes were divided into study groups, some composed of men, others of women, collectively termed assemblies of wisdom. All lessons were carefully prepared, written down, and submitted to the caliph for his seal. At the end of the lecture, all present kissed the seal. For did the caliph not claim direct descent from Muhammad through his son-in-law Ali and thence from Ishmael, the seventh imam? He was the embodiment of divinity, far more than any Tibetan Lama ever was. The university, lavishly endowed and possessing the best manuscripts and scientific instruments available, received a grant of a quarter of a million gold pieces annually from the Caliph. Its external form was similar to the pattern of the ancient Arab universities, not much different from Oxford, but its real purpose was the complete transformation of the mind of the student. Students had to pass through nine degrees of initiation, the same number that are claimed in the York Rite of Freemasonry. In the first, the teachers threw their pupils into a state of doubt about all conventional ideas, religious and political. They used false analogy and every other device of argument to make the aspirant believe that what he had been taught by his previous mentors was prejudiced and capable of being challenged. The effect of this, according to the Arab historian Makrizi, was to cause him to lean upon the personality of the teachers as the only possible source of the proper interpretation of facts. At the same time, the teachers hinted continually that formal knowledge was merely the cloak for hidden inner and powerful truth, whose secret would be imparted when the youth was ready to receive it. None ever questioned why no secret was ever put forth. This confusion technique was carried out until the student reached the stage where he was prepared to swear a vow of blind allegiance to one or other of his teachers. This oath, together with certain secret signs, was administered in due course and the candidate awarded the first degree of initiation. The second degree took the form of initiation into the fact that the Imams, the successors of Muhammad, were the true and only sources of secret knowledge and power. Imams inspired the teachers, therefore the student was to acknowledge every saying and act of his appointed guides as blessed and divinely inspired. In the third degree, the esoteric names of the seven imams were revealed, and the secret words by which they could be conjured and by which the powers inherent in the very repetition of their names could be liberated and used for the individual, especially in the service of the sect. In the fourth degree, the succession of the seven mystical lawgivers and magical personalities was given to the learner. These were characterized as Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Mohammed, and Ishmael. There were seven mystical helpers: Seth, Shem, Ishmael, Aaron, Simon, Ali, and Mohammed, the sons of Ishmael. This last was dead, but he had a mysterious deputy who was the Lord of the Time, authorized to give his instructions. To the people of truth, as the Ismailis called themselves. This hidden figure gave the Caliph the power to pretend that he was acting under even higher instructions. The fifth degree named twelve apostles under the seven prophets, whose names and functions and magical powers were described. In this degree, the power to influence others by means of personal concentration was supposed to be taught. One writer, claims that this was done merely by the repetition for a period of three years to train the mind of the magical word akhzapti to obtain the sixth degree involved instructions in the methods of analytical and destructive argument in which the postulant had to pass a very stiff examination The seventh degree brought revelations of the great secret that all humanity and all creation were one and every single thing was a part of the whole, which included the creative and destructive power, the androgynous God. But as an Ishmael, the individual could make use of the power which was ready to be awakened within him and overcome those who knew nothing of the immense potential of the rest of humanity. This power came through the aid of the mysterious power called the Lord of the time. To qualify for the eighth degree, the aspirant had to believe that all religion, philosophy, and the like were fraudulent. All that mattered was the individual who could attain fulfillment only through servitude to the greatest developed power, the Imam. The ninth and last degree brought the revelation of the secret that there was no such thing as belief. All that mattered was action, and the only possessor of the reasons for carrying out any action was the chief of the sect. As a secret society, the organization of the Ishmaelis, as outlined above, was undoubtedly powerful and seemed likely to produce a large number of devotees who would blindly obey the orders of whomever was in control of the edifice. But. As with many other bodies of this kind, there were severe limitations from the point of view of effectiveness. Perhaps the phase of revolt or subversion planned by the society did not in the end get under way. Perhaps it was not intended to work by any other means than training the individual. Be that as it may, its real success extended abroad only to Baghdad in 1058, where a member gained temporary control of Baghdad and coined money in the Egyptian caliph's name. Now this sultan was slain by the Turks, who now entered the picture. And the Cairo headquarters was also threatened. By 1123, the society was closed down by the vizier Afdal. The rise of Turkish power seemed to have discouraged the expansionist Cairo sect so strongly that they almost faded out, and very little is heard of them after that date. It was left to Hassan, son of Sabah, the old man of the mountains, to perfect the system of the ailing secret society, and found an organization which has endured for another thousand years. Who was Well, he was the son of a Shia, Ali worshiper, and Khorasan, a most bigoted man who claimed that his ancestors were Arabs from Kufa. Now this assumption was probably due to the fact that such a lineage bolstered up claims to religious importance then as now among Muslims. You see, the people of the neighborhood, many of them also Shias, stated very decisively that this Ali was a Persian, and so were his forebears. So it is generally thought that this is the truer version. As the governor of the province was an orthodox Muslim, Ali spared no efforts to assume the same guise. Now this is considered to be completely permissible, the doctrine of intelligent dissimulation. As there was some doubt as to his reliability in the religious sense, he retired into a monastic retreat and sent his son, Hassan, to an orthodox school. This school was no ordinary one. It was a circle of disciples presided over by the redoubtable Imam Muafiq, about whom it was said that every individual who enrolled under him eventually rose to great power. It was here that Hassan met Omar Khayyam, the tentmaker poet and astronomer, later to be the poet laureate of Persia. Another of his schoolmates was Nizam al-Mulk, who rose from peasanthood to become prime minister. These three made a pact, according to Nizam's autobiography, whereby whichever one rose to high office first would help the others and that tenet has survived to this day. It is how their own infiltrate all levels of society, military, and government, and then pull their brothers up into positions below them. It is the method for infiltrating and controlling large masses, populations, governments, military organizations, and society as a whole.
0: And I will cut it off there. Um, I'll leave a link once again to the entire uh, episode, The Assassins. And I thought that was interesting because in, in general, as I go through these apostasies, I want to connect them to what I believe is the root of all false religions. And I'm just specifically speaking of those that are offshoots Um, apostasies from the Bible, Um, you know, so I talked about Kabbalah and now, you know, uh, the Quran, which those two are not related to the Christian world, but um, I thought that they would, they work um, in terms of this timeline, and um, I'm kind of like as I go through this, thinking what to do next, but I think it's going to be Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, and so as I go through these, and yeah. So I hope that you found this is interesting enough and uh, at least a place to start in terms of learning about these things. Um, and hopefully it is encouraging to you I'm sure there's so much m- more that I could have said, but um, yeah, so this is just the beginning of, of the broad, it's a very broad scope of, of this, you know, the truth and, and as I go through these things. All right. Thank you all and have a wonderful day.
1: This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hedrick. This podcast is
2: brought to you by Proverbs 16, 18. Pride going before destruction.